When I say the word witch, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Is it an old woman in a pointy hat who stirs bubbling cauldrons and flies on a broom? Well, that's the characterization promoted in pop culture. That caricature, however, hides a tragedy that has claimed, best guess, tens, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives across the world. It's also about a debate that occurs to this day between philosophy and science over different versions of reality and knowledge and how institutions have reacted to that debate. I'm Matt Sedlar, and today's sociology, with some help from history, philosophy, and anthropology, is going to ruin witchcraft. To paraphrase Olivia Newton-John, let's get metaphysical. Let's start with, what is a witch? Well, if you're a witch hunter in the 16th and 17th centuries, a witch was a disciple of Satan. Oh, sorry, had something in my throat there. Brian Easley writes in his book, Witch Hunting, Magic, and the New Philosophy, that at the time, Satan and various demons were believed to only be able to achieve their nefarious deeds through a collaboration with humans, nearly always women, of course. But people had to submit to Satan through their own free will. So why women? According to men at the time, it had to do with excessive carnality. It was believed that if a woman were spurned by a man, she would make a pact with Satan and use her newfound powers to make, I don't know, crops die? These women were then chained up and led to court where they were required to recount their evil deeds. Well, let's take a look at this from a modern perspective. Men were requiring women to appear before court and recount their sexual activities. Today, we'd consider that offensive and reeking of desperation, but at the time, it was deadly serious. If a woman denied witchcraft and refused to confess, she was hanged. Okay, so to summarize, from the witch hunter's perspective, a witch was a woman who couldn't get enough of ye old thirst traps and align herself with Satan to get revenge when she was scorned. That's it? Of course not. We've already established that the church didn't trust women, but it goes farther than that. They did not like women, especially those, according to Easley, quote, living beyond the immediate control of men, end quote. There was a mean misogynistic streak within the church, with women, using the example of Eve, held up as the downfall of mankind. But the complaints went farther than theological interpretation of scripture. If you listen to the show regularly, the following should sound familiar. 16th century Europe experienced a lot of turmoil. Food shortages, inflation, peasant revolts, and social movements seeking to create a more equitable society. In light of these events, the church attempted to quell dissent through a good old-fashioned inquisition. Some of the church's arguments may sound a little familiar. Point number one, they're trying to overthrow us! Well, they weren't entirely wrong about that. Silvia Federici writes in her book Caliban and the Witch that women were overwhelmingly involved in the so-called heretic movements that questioned the authority of the church and the state. Why? Heresy, quote, denounced social hierarchies, private property, and the accumulation of wealth, and it disseminated among the people a new revolutionary concept of society that, for the first time in the Middle Ages, redefined every aspect of daily life, work, property, sexual reproduction, and the position of women, posing the question of emancipation in truly universal terms, end quote. Creating charges of witchcraft, whether it was intended by the ruling elite or not, not only killed off people involved in these movements, but also created distrust among their members. These were superstitious times, so peasant men would question being aligned with potential friends of Satan. There was also an uproar over the Sabbath. 
an event where witches supposedly gather around fires at night to sacrifice goats and participate in orgies. The church was actually afraid peasants were gathering around fires away from the prying eyes of church and state officials to plot to overthrow the government. Maybe there were also orgies. Eh, Who knows? Point number two. They're taking on jobs! Seriously. Prior to this period, women had taken a more dominant role in medicine and healthcare, particularly when it came to childbirth. According to Barbara Ehrenreich and Deidre English in their book Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, witches were also often accused of giving contraceptive aid and performing abortions for women in need. All this became a major sticking point with dudes. Old Francis Bacon, philosopher and one of the leaders of the scientific revolution, wrote, quote, Witches and old women and imposters have had a competition with physicians. End quote. Yeah, it sounds pretty reasonable that physicians should have an education in medicine before practicing, right? Well, it's important to remind listeners that the prominent belief among doctors during this time was that the body was controlled entirely by the four humors, black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm. Coincidentally, those are also the names of the four members of a guar cover band I just made up called Moir Guar. Yeah. Also, men had much less experience with childbirth than women because A, they aren't women, and B, midwives have been doing all the work for centuries. But hey, let's shake things up. Why not? All of this didn't just apply to Europe. The witch hunts in America had a similar tinge. Much like in Europe, tensions in Massachusetts were also high leading up to the Salem witch trials. Charles II had revoked the colony's charter and sent a royal governor to oversee Massachusetts. Though William of Orange eventually removed Charles II from the throne, little changed for the colonists, and they became pessimistic about the future of Massachusetts. Political dissension also spread through the ruling class. The courts were occupied with land disputes and personal feuds. Playwright Arthur Miller captures the mood perfectly in his play The Crucible, which is based on the Salem witch trials. What starts as girls dancing by a fire and attempting to commune with spirits escalates into accusations based on personal vendettas, and even offhand remarks cost Salem residents their lives. In this clip, an older resident of Salem named Giles Corey complains to a visiting reverend investigating the claims of witchcraft about his wife's unusual behavior. Mr. Hale, I have always wanted to ask a learned man, what signifies the reading of strange books? What books? I cannot tell. She hides them. Who hides them? Martha, my wife. I have waked at night many a time and found her in a corner reading of a book. Now, what do you make of that? Why, that's not necessarily a sign It discomforts me. Uh, Last night, mark this, I tried and tried and could not say my prayers. And then she closed her book and walks out of the house and suddenly, mark this, I could pray again. The stoppage of prayer. That is strange. I'll speak with you further on that. I'm not saying she's touched the devil now, but... I'd admire to know what books she reads and why she hides them. She'll not answer me, you see. I will discuss it. Both Giles and his wife Martha were murdered during the Salem witch trials. Martha was hanged. Giles, however, refused to enter a guilty or not guilty plea. So he was killed by what was called pressing. Basically, a person was stripped down and had a board placed on top of them. Officials then placed heavy rocks on the board until the person confessed. It was reported that every time he was asked to confess, Giles responded more weight. Eventually, he was crushed under the weight of the rocks. There are different sociological explanations for the witch trials in Europe and America. Sociologist Kai Erickson, who writes about Salem in his book The Wayward Puritans, and Georg Simmel would probably agree that group conflicts stabilize society by eliminating parties who threaten the dominant social order. 
And since superstitions plagued the opposing group, there was less solidarity amongst the witches, which left the church and state victorious. Feminists like Federici interpret the period not unlike how I've described the history of the trials, an attempt to force women into a more submissive role so they could provide more laborers for the capitalist machine that was kicking into gear as feudalism died out. And as with any topic on this show, it's so much more complicated than what I've presented so far. At the beginning of the podcast, I set out to define which, and I barely scratched the surface. So far, all this is about supposed witchcraft or accusations of witchcraft throughout Western history. But what about actual witchcraft? Arthur Miller, who if you need a reminder was the playwright who wrote The Crucible, once wrote in The New Yorker that the McCarthy hearings during the Red Scare of the 1950s were like the witch trials, except, quote, there were never any witches, but there certainly are communists, end quote. I don't know if that statement is accurate because, again, it depends on how we define witches. There's the definition of radicalized women of the 17th century and earlier that I've already covered. But that's not to say those women didn't also dabble in hallucinogens, which some attribute to the claim of flying, or that they didn't hand out herbs that act as aphrodisiacs, some of which have been scientifically proven. I'll put a link in the show notes if you're interested. There's another definition of witch, though. Many cultures around the world, from parts of Africa to Asia and Latin America, believe in witchcraft. In the West, we regard this as superstition, but in other cultures, knowledge of the supernatural is accepted as truth. Sociologist Boaventura de Souza Santos writes about this divide in knowledge in the West, where on one side, science is accepted as truth or fact, and on the other side, alternative modes of knowledge such as philosophy and theology are considered belief or opinions. And we use this framework in particular when we look at the Global South, which D'Souza Santos calls the Colonial Zone. According to D'Souza Santos, the Colonial Zone is based on beliefs and behaviors that are not considered knowledge by people in the Global North. Those who exist on the other side of this dividing line are an underclass, not fit for social inclusion. We also do this within the United States. For example, think of the way people react to Jehovah's Witnesses, who refuse blood transfusions based on their beliefs. We can attribute this to the shift in Western philosophy during the Enlightenment. Go ahead and listen to the last episode, Sociology Ruins Normal, if you want background on that. But basically, the Enlightenment introduced rationalism and the scientific method. Science is based on observation, and you can observe witches, ghosts, and goblins. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche also famously proclaimed, God is dead. Because again, if you can't observe miracles, they don't exist. The persecution stopped, at least in America and Europe, because Western science simply dismissed anything that wasn't explained by science as nonsense and not worth spending time on. But, as we know, with Christianity, people didn't stop believing, and around the world, people didn't stop believing in witchcraft. This leads me to now. Though sociologists typically work within their own cultures, we often forget how fluid culture is, especially when travel and migration put us in contact with beliefs different from our own. How do we as researchers treat everyone regardless of their beliefs with dignity? To answer this question, I decided to talk to an anthropologist about something called cultural relativism. My name is Ashley Scrivener. I am a cultural anthropology grad student here at Mason University, George Mason University. My undergrad, I majored in anthropology and double minored in art history and religion studies. Ashley, can you explain cultural relativism to me like I'm in high school? (laughs) Cultural relativism comes in anthropological theory um, by Franz Boas, who we call um, pretty much the father of anthropology, American anthropology, or as the grad students would say, Daddy Boas, you know. Um, (laughs) 
we we make jokes about it all the time. <laughs> Cultural relativism is pretty much under the notion that it's the idea of a person's beliefs um, or and or practices that should be understood based on a person's own culture. So it's not to make so judgments on using the standards of one's own culture, but instead looking through the perspective and or the perspective of a different culture that we're studying. How this kind of ties into anthropological theory and more of a method type of practice would be sought to valorize the marginalized. So that would mean that we're kind of trying to hear the voice of the people who have been marginalized or put into a certain part of history that hasn't been heard before, which is if you know the phrase, history is written by the winners, right? We're kind of looking in the perspective by the people who are technically labeled as the losers, right? So kind of seeing this perspective puts into like today's standards is listening to the minority voice or listening to the voice that hasn't been heard. So this is kind of promoting the understanding of cultural practices um, that is unfamiliar to other cultures, right? And this also does is pushes back ethnocentrism which is the practice of viewing and judging of someone else's culture from our own cultural perspective, which ethnocentrism tends to tarnish research because of this particular viewpoint. So what is cultural relativism? It's like asking a bull how it feels to fly. You know, it's like you want to know what it is that someone else's experience is not based on what you know, you know? So the best way I can actually do an example, um, I studied abroad in Italy. And one thing to note is that in Italy, Italians run through red lights a lot. In the perspective of an American, you would assume that if someone were to cross a red light, right, in the middle of traffic or anything like that, is that they're uncontrollable. They're like, what they're doing, they must be, you know, stupid or whatever and all that other stuff. Like we would, because we're so ingrained when it comes to the law, right, when it comes to red lights. However, it's the complete opposite. In the Italian's eyes, they see lights uh, for cars and everything like that, green and red lights, as a suggestion. They see it, oh, if I'm more of an experienced driver and I use my logic and see that the four-way stop is empty, I'm going to go right ahead. Why wait when it's all open and I, as an experienced driver, can then drive through it? But in Americans' eyes, they think, oh, they must be uncontrollable and they don't give a crap, right? And they would do that in front of the police and the police won't do anything. So they must think, oh, the government obviously doesn't care about people's safety. In fact, is that they're so secure on how they are individually as drivers that that doesn't matter. It's just a suggestion. So that's when it comes to cultural relativism. If I were to put my own cultural perspective on something that is a commonality in a different culture, that in a sense, the, the information is misconstrued. So kind of putting it in that perspective, it really does give us a more in-depth understanding from a different perspective. Um, and we do this all the time. This is pretty much the whole essence of anthropology, especially how it's taught today, is to have this, I'm going to say correct data, because if I were to put my cultural perspective on something else, the only thing that I'm going to get is my opinion of it based on what I know. But if we really want to say, if we really have the question and say, hey, what does this culture do and why? 
my view of it is not the answer to that. So we must know and we must reverse ourselves into our participant observation and figure out exactly how to answer our questions, which is understanding other people's culture and their point of view. So that is technically cultural relativism. How do you approach a situation in which a cultural practice is harmful to the participants? Uh, the example of Italians running red lights, it may or may not be harmful to Italians, but maybe to people outside of Italy not used to the practice. Or maybe a better example is female genital mutilation, which is practiced in some cultures without consent. It really does depend. You know, if we have an anthropologist that's going in ethnographically, right, they're there, they're right there in front of it. And that's happening in front of them. That's more of a humanitarian thing at that point, because I feel like we can come to a general consensus that there's something going on that's harmful to somebody else. Now, it's not like, hey, I have this opinion or this is my religious opinion. And, you know, it's not like that. This is an actual harm to somebody else. If the participants of this practice are all in this consensual agreement, then it's none of our business. As in, if the participant, the one who's getting mutilated and the person who is doing the mutilating are like, yeah, this is completely fine. Like, we're totally like, that's fine. Then that's not our job to interfere because we feel like it's not a good thing. However, if it's somebody who's begging for their life, please don't don't hurt me. That's a different scenario there. And that, at that point, it's not about the study. It's about like, hey, like, if I have the capability of helping somehow, go ahead and do that. But at that point, it's just you as a person making a determination. But when it comes to the study, especially when it comes to anthropologists who are uncomfortable of something, when it comes to a consensual party, that is not this anthropologist's job to interfere and say, no, 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 this is wrong. It's only wrong in their perspective, right? In their culture. And, and their way of life, you know, and their belief, that's wrong for them. Again, it's, there's been several types of, like the Aztecs, for example, they, the best warrior would go and volunteer himself to have his heart ripped out for the gods, because if they didn't do it, the sun would not come up the next day. So they want to give their best to the gods, so then they can appease them the right way. If I was there right now and seeing that happen, I'm thinking, oh, my God, they're killing the guy. But at the same time, this is all a consensual party here saying, no, this is what we believe in. So that's it's none of my right. All I have to do is just observe. And if I don't like it, then I leave. <laughs> you know, it really just depends. It's not just black and white all the time. And so that's why we have an ethics board and we have an actual way of doing things in in, um, in, if not in ethnography and research. And so that at that point just becomes a little bit more technical of exactly what we do. But at the end of the day, um, that's just one of those things that we come across when it comes to studying other cultures. There's things that we would feel slightly uncomfortable with, but to other people, it's not. So that's kind of the things that we determine on the way of our own research as well. There's always this debate within the social sciences over the role of empiricism, the idea that knowledge stems directly from experience. And we even see this within anthropology. I was in a hybrid undergrad grad student archaeology course in the spring, and there were undergrads insisting that archaeology was a hard science and should be separated from anthropology. Um, I know we previously had talked a little about religion, which I'm going to say witchcraft falls under. While our actions are certainly open to empirical study, our beliefs and behaviors are a little more slippery. Do you think there's an empirical explanation for beliefs, or does the study of beliefs require a little more imagination? 
looking back at the beginning of what your statement was when it comes to archaeologists and believing it's a hard science or certain people who believe it's a hard science that shouldn't include anthropology, I think it really just depends on their specialty, right? So if it's a bio arc, you know, a biological archaeologist, of course they're looking at the hard science. However, I personally know biological uh, archaeologists and they consistently inform me that they're always using cultural anthropology or cultural perspectives when they're doing their work because things that are involving humans or indirectly involving humans always have humans in the equation and thus they're always having some sort of human interaction so i think it really does come down to the perspective but i think when it comes to anthropology anthropology studies everything you can take anything that are two complete opposites from each other and you can make it anthropological So I think separation is not a thing. I think it really comes down to the opinion of somebody and their interests, but nothing is truly separated from one another, especially when there's human involvement. I think that's one thing I wanted to clear up. And and I think I understand that you, 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 you can agree with that as well. But I think for the people who are listening is that that's not necessarily a yes, no answer. It's more of like, hey, from my perspective, hard science is the way to go. But then overall, in an anthropological point of view, we're all somewhat connected. So whatever you do, the next thing to look at is not just the evidence that you're looking at, but you're looking at the archaeologists themselves, what they're doing and in interpreting the material past or the material evidence. So that's that part. So empiricism is a sensory experience. So it's that proposition that is considered true. If you say frogs are better pets than dogs, I think in a general consensus, we wouldn't believe that to be true because most people have dogs for pets, right? But if it were the other way around, if let's say now 60% of people say, oh no, frogs would be good pets, then that statement would then be true. So it all comes down to the belief of certain people or a commonality of a culture or a tradition. And when it comes to having this general consensus of what is true and what is false, then it's empirical. And so you have pretty much what it's experienced of today versus the logic, right? It's experiential versus the logic or the factual science, right? So we get like empirical psychology when it comes to belief systems, right? Empirical psychology is also involved. Uh, religion is an empirical thing when it comes to a consensus. They're like, hey, we believe in a singular God, monotheism, right? Or a polytheistic like the hin- like Hinduism. Hinduism wouldn't consider themselves polytheistic, however. They would consider themselves monotheistic because they believe Brahman is connected to all the deities that they believe in, right? Because it's all one. But in a westernized eyes, they're more polytheistic because they have all these other gods. So is anthropology and sociology empirical? Of course it is. You know, because what we're looking at, we're looking at a general truth within culture. They do this tradition because this is what they think is a true thing for them to do. For example, if you ask children if Santa's real, they're going to believe Santa's real. You know, when they grow up, that's going to be different. But that in a traditional sense, that's something that we do each year. That December 25th is always Christmas. We have to look at what we're observing. And what we're observing, like I said, with the red light, green light scenario, we believe something as in they don't follow the law. That is our truth, but that's not necessarily their truth. So we're studying their truth in a sense. Now, when it comes to the more 
difficult idea, which is religion, right? Ideology, belief systems. You have a certain idea of what you believe, thus you believe to be true. Thus, that can be empirical. However, the more and more you dig into something, the more complex it's going to be, and even that's going to be more complex. So looking at it kind of in a Buddhist perspective, there's a balance of things, right? There's the known, and then there's the unknown. There's some things that you can technically make anything empirical if you have a whole lifetime or many more to do it. However, should we make things empirical all the time? No, not necessarily. I don't think everything should be empirical, even though it can be, if you really, really want to put in the work for that, you know? So a lot of the things that we would consider spiritual or beyond the body or energy, you know, things that are can't necessarily be measured. And when I mean energy, I'm not talking really the scientific energy. I'm talking more about the spiritual, like this chakra, you know, like all that other stuff. That, in a sense... If you really want to look at certain variations of it, you can make it empirical. However, should we? I like to think of the example of prayer. So we know prayer exists because it's part of many religions around the world. However, can we measure the effect of prayer? And even if we could measure the effect, what does that do to the dignity of our subjects if we, say, disprove the effect of prayer? Well, here's a perspective I would probably say is that how many times has someone made a prayer for their sick sibling and how many times has that sick sibling recovered? So then you can measure it empirically. You ask all about the people who pray for the good health of their sibling and you get that group together and then you can measure it. And you can also say, when you pray, what do you feel? Or let me, let me take a scan of your brain while you're praying and see if there's any commonalities with everybody else. So I think looking at it in a certain, not just perspective, but in a subject, right? In a sociological perspective, belief is kind of out of the door, right? You're like, you're thinking, okay, we're looking at societies, we're looking how they function, and that's it. But then we kind of forget that there's neuroscience or psychology or geospatial, you know, informational systems, you know, like there's all these other things, these other factors that I feel like, like I said, it's going back to this kind of scope that it's like the archaeologists that were in your class saying that, oh, it's a hard science only. However, it's all connected, you know? So I think when it comes down to things being empirical, that's what I'm saying, that things are getting way into depth. Because if someone has a question or they already have an answer, presumably in their head, thus they're going to make a question, they're going to make a research about it. And that's why we have a lot of research that's misconstrued, right? Because people already have the answer. And that's why when it comes to theology, for example, a lot of theologians who are, who them, they themselves are Christians, trying to prove Jesus' existence or try to prove Christianity's existence and trying to put in this empirical work onto Christianity, they already believe that this is something true to them. Thus, the research can be biased. So to the reader of a secular eyes, or somebody who's Hindu, or somebody who's Buddhist, or Shinto, or Muslim, they're going to look at it and say, that doesn't make any sense. You know, because it looks like the author themselves believe in it, thus they're going to make the research and the evidence thus prove it. So empirical work can be very, very 
sensitive when it comes to that, because at the end of the day, it's all about the researcher who does it. That's why when we look at theory in an anthropological sense, we don't even look at the we don't even just look at the theory. We look at the person every single time who makes the theory because people are never unbiased. So when we look at Darwin, when we look at Marx, when we look at Durkheim, you know, we look at obviously their evidence and we explain it and we we theorize it and we we go into the nitty-gritty of it, but we always look at the researcher themselves and see what about them made them believe thus bring in this information and this theory. And then everything gets complicated because at the end of the day, anthropologists, like, what do we believe in? Because if we're constantly questioning everything, right? It's like we're also in this dome of the limitless. And we're like, oh, we're kind of floating out there. We're always questioning. There's always this perspective and this perspective to consider. And the best way I can explain is that at the end of the day, you have to believe what you can in the present, but also guarantee yourself that the person that you're going to become in the future as well might have a different idea or a different belief. So be true to yourself now, but always be open if you're wrong. Always be open if you're wrong and or open if there's just a different perspective to consider and then go from there. If you meet someone who is so dead set in a belief or dead set in the political idea or an idea, in that sense, it's hard to believe them <laughs> because if you are consistently open and gaining so much new information and consistently changing your perspective in the way that people should be, as in consistently growing based on their own experiential and evidence, right, and their own way of understanding things, then that person seems stuck in your eyes, you know, and they have a hard time, not just with the world, but especially with themselves. You know, I think that's the most important thing about anthropology. It's not just about what you're studying. It's the self-reflection. That's the most important I have to emphasize. Self-reflection Self -reflection is not just good in the academic world, but is also good as in a personal setting as well. So all of this comes in consideration based on the person in your eyes and how you perceive them. There is definitely a way that we perceive witchcraft in the West that differs from other cultures. We perceive, for example, voodoo in Haiti as witchcraft when it's actually a religion. What I'm trying to understand is that, for example, we know Christians exist. People who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior gather in a building called a church every Sunday to pray, and they're labeled Christians. But we say, well, witches don't exist. How is it that we accept the existence of many different beliefs but exclude others? Honestly, it really comes down to the definition of what is a witch, right? You're saying from a Western perspective, however, there's also a different perception of what a witch is, right? If we're looking at the witch trials... During that time, it was not necessarily a religion. It was a religion that they used to exploit what, what happened, the mass genocide. Because realistically, can someone change someone into a newt? Just because I have freckles and moles, does that make me somebody who's ill-willed and a witch? I would say I would consider witchcraft, especially during that time. And the way it was used, it's very, very, very similar to what's happening today with gray zones. And what gray zones are is that kind of in-between of warfare and peacetime. Um, and what that means is that a lot of what's happening today is the bending of the truth or the exploitation of misinformation. So if you get a group of people and say, witchcraft is real, they're out to get you, because you're Christian and because you're this and that, this is what's happening and they are the followers of Satan. 
and you're like, holy, you know, like I, and especially to the people who are uneducated, they can't even think for themselves in a sense. Like they can think for themselves, of course, but like when it comes to limited amount of education, they can only believe so much. So it's very, very, very easy to control. So women who was the main contender in this particular genocide, what happened was, is that if they went beyond the gender norms, they would get killed. Because the last thing that they want is a woman to say, hey, I have something to say, you know, and they're like, oh, this, because you have free will, or because you have something to say, this must be the devil's doing. And what really, it's not just that, what, what witchcraft, especially during those days, main intention was, is so they can get people or rivals out of the way. So if you didn't like your farmer neighbor, right, because he stole a cow, you're going to say, hey, he's a witch. He talks to the devil and he does this and does that. And he does, um, he paints his cows. You know, that's weird. You know, maybe in the middle of the night you go paint the cow. So then when they go and check on him, they're like, oh my God, he, he painted his cows. How unusual, how unchristian of you, <laughs> right? And so it was human exploitation. However, people genuinely believed it. You know, if you ever read The Crucible, that's exactly what the situation is happening, right? You see that people genuinely believe. So they're obviously bringing God into the situation to bring in the religion into the situation, the doctrine to, for explanation, as in, if it doesn't meet the doctrine standards, you're out. You're, you're, not, you're not part of the community anymore, right? However, you know the girl who claimed that the main character's wife was a witch was because she was jealous, right? So then you have this kind of human interaction too. So, and when you say Haitian, you know, um, Haitian culture, voodooism is not necessarily the same thing as witchcraft in the way that we are explaining it right now, right? So I wouldn't consider that under the realm of witchcraft. That is, is their own religion and their own belief system that has been exploited and decimated because of colonialism and, you know, um, marginalization and everything like that, right? So... I think when you're focusing on witchcraft, I think you had to come down to a certain culture and the way witchcraft was used. Was it a witchcraft itself a religion? That only comes in the fact if the people who claim themselves to be witches practices witchcraft. But in that particular sense, they didn't. They were just accused of being one because that was the worst thing that you can be accused of in your own small little community which people that you believed and trusted went against you like that because their belief was so strong beyond the person. So was witchcraft a religion? If you look at it in the modern sense, there's people who do claim themselves to be a witch. But what are the criteria of being a witch, right? Doesn't mean you do alchemy. Doesn't mean that you believe in Satan in the way that we're talking about right now. Doesn't mean that you are more in the elements rather than just this hardcore science are all about, you know, alternative medicine, you know, what does that mean? Tarot cards for, you know, so I think you had to evaluate exactly what is your definition of witch and how is that put into a religious context? It was a scapegoat necessarily, right? Did most people know it was a scapegoat? No, that I would say would be, again, another long answer to your question. Wow. Well, it is a lot of ground to cover. Thanks, Ashley. So, what is a witch? Apparently, I'm no closer to a definition than I was at the beginning of the podcast. 
It's a word that's been used for political and social repression, and it's used in different ways across different cultures. But do I think witches exist? Yeah, I do. If we're willing to accept that people gathering in a mosque are Muslim, then we should be willing to accept that in cultures where witchcraft is practiced, witches exist. Again, those with beliefs rooted entirely in science might dismiss the world's religions and witchcraft equally, but that doesn't negate the fact that they exist. And if they exist as social scientists, we shouldn't ignore them. In fact, we probably should come up with a definition. I'd like to thank my guest, Ashley Scrivener. Also, I want to thank Courtney Bell for checking my script and suggesting some readings, including The Crucible. I'm pretty ashamed to say I've never read The Crucible before this podcast, but Courtney, I am really familiar with Arthur Miller's other famous work, Death of a Salesman, so I'm not entirely hopeless. The music playing us out is by Matt Cummins. You can find a link to his songs in the show notes. I'm Matt Sedlar, and next month, sociology will ruin something entirely different for you.